So this morning we're continuing uh, in the book of Philippians. And uh, last week I mentioned that the author of this book, it's really a letter, uh, Paul, he's in prison. And uh, he's in prison because of his faith. So uh, he's been imprisoned by the Roman Empire uh, because he has been proclaiming and living as though Christ were the king. Uh, And for an empire that already has a king, uh, that's not just uh, a little annoying, that's treason. So uh, he's in prison for his faith. And the other thing to know about this uh, letter is that the people Paul is writing to, this church in Philippi, is itself experiencing some kind of harassment for their faith. Uh, They're losing out on work. They're getting pressure from their families. Uh, It it turns out that the way of Jesus uh, and the values of the world are not always very well aligned, and that the church is beginning to feel some of that pressure, and they're anticipating it to the pressure to increase in the future. So that's the context, okay? Their, Their pastors in prison, their community is being harassed. Uh, And we're picking up where we left off last week in Philippians chapter 3. And you'll remember that last week Paul had argued that uh, he is saved by faith, not by all these other extra things that he has done or credit to his name, but by faith alone. And now he's leaning into his faith, and he's using all these images to describe this kind of leaning in to his faith. He's straining toward what is ahead. He is pressing on. And we pick it up here in verse 15. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
And finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here's Paul, an imprisoned pastor, writing to the persecuted church. And he wants them to stand firm in the Lord. But not just to survive. Verse 4, he wants them to live joyful lives in the Lord. Joyful lives. Verse 7, with peace that transcends understanding. Verse 6, all without being anxious about anything. Joyful, at peace, not anxious. Doesn't that sound nice? What makes Paul think this is possible? This standing firm, these joyful lives, this peace that transcends understanding, especially when we know the context. We know all that's going on in the background here, the persecution, the imprisonment. What makes him think this joyful, peaceful, not anxious life is possible? Well, at the end of chapter 3, Paul gives a few reasons for his joy, and for his hope. First, in verse 20, Paul says that part of the reason we have hope is because we have this connection. He calls it a citizenship beyond this world. So even if this world uh, rejects you or misunderstands you, he says, listen, we're citizens of heaven. And second, Paul says that we have hope. This is from verse 21, because because Christ is coming back, and, and Christ will bring everything under His control. And in addition to that, also verse 21, he points out that even our bodies, our frail and often frustrating bodies, will be transformed in the resurrection. And what all three of these have in common is that the hope that we have now is in some way based on a future reality or something that will be revealed in the future. So Paul can stand in the present. Paul can have hope. He can talk about joy because he knows the future. You would say he has perspective. He knows that suffering doesn't last forever and that the kingdom of heaven is a sure thing. I've heard some people describe it this way. They say that our trials, our sufferings in this life, are really just like a passing storm. It may be wet and rainy today, but the sun will come out tomorrow. Eventually, heaven will set everything right, and that gives us hope and even joy to endure in the present. Now, the, the passing storm image, it's an interesting one, um, especially today. Today is August 28, and it was exactly 17 years ago today uh, that the people of New Orleans were preparing for a storm 
to come and pass. And of course, that storm did eventually pass. But I think Katrina taught us that passing storms are not always just passing storms. I I don't know you folks at Alger as well as I knew the folks in my former church. But I know a, a bit about you all. And so I know that for some of you, the, the storms in your life, the trials that you have faced, have been less like a 30-minute a, a summer afternoon thunderstorm and more like Katrina. For some of you, when the storms hit your life, sure, some sunny days returned, but also the levees broke, and you lost everything, and the help that you needed wasn't there, and your life will never be the same. Sometimes when I hear people say uh, trials are just like a passing storm, I think, lucky you. Walk in my shoes, see how you like those storms. But of course, it is hard to be so smug if we're talking to Paul, the guy who is now telling us to have joy now because the future will be so good. Because the trials in Paul's life have not exactly been afternoon sprinkles. The guy is imprisoned by an empire that will eventually execute him. We learn elsewhere in Scripture that in addition to this imprisonment, he's been beaten, he's been whipped, he's been shipwrecked, he's been homeless. He's done things he can never undo. I mean, he has blood on his hands. Paul has, Paul's had kind of a terrible life. So I actually think Paul does know a bit about what it is to suffer. He's been through the category fours and category fives. But he is also the one who says, without a hint of irony, literally from a prison cell, that the day is coming when God will calm the storm. We might have to wait till heaven to see it, but Paul knows the weather is going to clear up. Paul has joy, and and he thinks that we can have it too, because he knows there is this future with Jesus, and that future is so good. This is one of the most common perspectives on suffering in the Bible, this future hope that God will make things right again. It's a good perspective. It's biblical. It's clearly at the heart of Paul's joy despite his terrible situation. But but there is a rather significant problem with how some people apply this perspective. Uh, So uh, you'll have to... uh, Imagine this for me. If a hurricane is coming to your region, what do people do to their homes? They, they board them up, right? Or closer to home, we don't have a lot of hurricanes here in Michigan, uh, but when the, the tornado siren goes off, uh, where do you go? Into the basement, right? And the principle here is that if you cannot get yourself or your home out of the way of the storm, you try to shut yourself off from the storm as much as you can. 
So about five years ago, a tornado came through Kent County, uh, and the sirens were blaring, and my wife and I and our only child at the time, we went to the basement, as you do. Uh, but then uh, we saw on our phones that the path of the storm had actually shifted, and now it was going to go right through our neighborhood. At which point, still in the basement, we went under a table, and we pulled the old couch that's down there right up next to the table. Right? The idea is you put as much as you can between yourself and the stormy world around you. So, a Christian could apply this to suffering. If suffering for us is just a passing storm, then maybe we ought to get in the basement. Maybe Christians uh, should separate themselves from the world. We ought to board up the windows hide under the table, pull up the couch. Basically, just keep to ourselves as much as we can until the storm passes and we get to heaven. If the source of our joy is knowing that something good is coming after this life, then get in the basement and ride it out. This world is full of pain and hurt. If you can avoid it, avoid it. Here's my question. If the reason for our joy is a future heaven, why should a Christian ever leave their basement? Frankly, why even go to church? I mean, you want to talk about trouble. So I, I work as a consultant uh, with churches going through conflict or trying to deal with their differences. Let me tell you, churches are kind of hard places to be right now. There ain't, there ain't anyone out there without a complaint or two or ten about their church. COVID. Oh yeah, that was an easy one. <laughs> Let's talk about racism. Or how about human sexuality? You name it, we've got complaints about it. Why not just stay in the basement? Read your Bible. Avoid the controversy, the unpleasantness. And just wait for heaven. Why even bother with this very messy thing we call church? Well, I think Paul gives us two reasons in our passage today. Euodia and Syntyche this little scene uh, right between chapter 3, famous chapter 3, all about this immense future hope and pressing on, and, and, and chapter 4, this famous chapter all about like rejoicing and the peace that passes understanding. Then you get this little reference to Iodia and Syntyche, and it feels so out of place. I mean, it doesn't feel of like a, a teacher who's like really kind of in a groove, and then there's like a couple kids misbehaving in the back, and they, they stop their lesson, like, hey, you in the back, cut it out! <laughs> so these two women, they're a part of the Philippian church. They're a significant part. They're partners in the gospel. But for some reason, they disagree. And, and the disagreement is big enough that Paul, who's 800 miles away and like across an ocean, he's heard about it. And he pleads with them to agree. We know nothing about the situation except that a couple of people don't get along. 
Anyway, Paul asked them to agree. Literally, he asked them to have the same mindset as one another. It's the same word used in chapter 2 to talk about how Christians ought to have the same mind as Christ. So here's my question. If, if Paul's reason for rejoicing, if the source of peace that passes understanding is all about the future and heaven, why is he bothering with these two women? Why bring it up? Why press into this little conflict? I mean, isn't he walking into a storm here? I often get this question in my consultation, like, Sean, do you really want to go there? You really want to bring this up? Wouldn't it be better if we all just avoided that? Why not just stay in the basement? Well, I think Paul steps out of the basement and into this storm because there's actually another source to his joy. His joy is actually not just about heaven in the future. Look at verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my what? My joy and my crown. What's Paul saying here? He's he's saying the Philippians themselves are his joy. Not just heaven in the future, but these people right here and now are his joy. This church, these people, even Euodia and Syntyche, they are his joy. What does he mean? I think what Paul means is that he is so invested in the faith of these fellow Christians that when they grow in their faith, when they put in the work to really love each other, even in this fight, whatever they're fighting about, when they start to act more like Jesus, that is a source of joy. They are, he says, like a crown on his head. Now, the crown he's referring to, it's it's not like a king and queen crown. It's it's a sports image. A crown was what you won in these ancient, uh, like, foot races, like ancient Olympics. And you trained and you worked, and if you won the race, you got a crown. It's like their gold medal. And Paul is saying that these brothers and sisters growing in their faith, practically loving each other, even though they get on each other's nerves, uh, they are like athletes in training. And they're working hard not to build up their muscles, but they're working hard to build up relationships with each other. And when they experience some measure of reconciliation, or when they live in peace, when they do have the same mind, it is like winning a gold medal. You know, one of the things I've learned in my job is getting along, okay? Like practically loving people with whom you have differences I think it'd be less work to qualify for the Olympics. It is an achievement. It is extraordinary when it happens. And I think that this little expression about them being his joy and crown is is one of the most overlooked but important reasons we get out of the basement. 
You see, for Paul, part of his joy was not just the heaven that he'd experience in the future. Paul's reward was to see other people come to and grow up in their faith. He wasn't just concerned that he was growing in his faith. He wasn't just concerned that he would make it to heaven. He found joy by investing his heart and soul into helping other people meet and live like Jesus. And you cannot do that from the basement. You cannot do that without getting your hands dirty. But when it does happen, when you see other people living like Jesus, especially when it's hard, when other people lived like Jesus, it was like heaven on earth for Paul. Their growth, their success became a joy equal to the joys of heaven for him. And so this is my question for us. Do we here at Alger see each other the way Paul saw the Philippians? Are we just at church to get saved ourselves? Are we just here because it's the thing we do and what we've always done? Am I just a part of this community because I I find the sermons interesting, at least most of the time, and, and the music is so well done? Am I just a part of this community for what I'm going to get out of it? Or are we so invested in the people around us that that Gary's growth and Matthew's faith and Rosie's faith are not just nice things, but they are our pride and joy? And we will step into the storm with them because when they are growing in their faith, It is like heaven on earth for us. See, we're not just here to ride out this world and to get to some distant heaven. Part of heaven, part of our joy, our crown, is right now the people around us. So go ahead and take a look around. I'll wait. You're not doing it. You're supposed to be looking around right now. (laughs) You are looking at the joy of heaven right around you. God has given you this community. It's right around you. If our biggest concerns are just what can I get out of church or how can church meet my needs, we're really no church at all. We might as well just stay in the basement. But Paul is urging us, as he urged Euodia and Syntyche, to get out of the basement. He's reminding us that as Christians, yes, we do look forward to future glory, no doubt about it. There is joy in waiting for heaven, but Paul is saying that joy does not need to wait. As we wait for the joy of heaven, we have the joy of each other. And there is a bit of heaven every time we step out of the basement to invest in and practically love those around us. Let's pray together. Living God, we thank you that this uh, state of suffering and pain and trials is not permanent, but that you will return and make everything right. 
And you will take our bodies and our minds that sometimes seem to betray us, and you will make them right and good again. Lord, we thank you also that as we wait for that day, you give us each other. May we see in one another the joy of heaven come down to earth as we grow more like you together. It's in your name we pray. Amen.